Hello and welcome to Watkins Wise Words, a podcast that celebrates conscious, passionate, wise and happy living. Thank you for tuning in and here is your host. So hello and welcome. My name is Steve Nabell and today I'm speaking with Dr. Miguel Farias and Catherine Wickholm on their book, The Buddha Pill. Can meditation actually change you? Now, Miguel has pioneered brain research on the pain alleviating effects of spirituality and the psychological benefits of yoga and meditation. He was educated in Macau, Lisbon and Oxford. Following his doctorate, he was a researcher at the Oxford Centre for Science of Mind and a lecturer at the Department of Experimental Psychology, University of Oxford. He currently leads Brain, Belief and Behaviour Group at the Centre for Research in Psychology, Behaviour and Achievement at Coventry University. And Catherine Wickham uh, has read Philosophy and Theology at Oxford University before doing a Master's in Forensic Psychology. Her interest in personal change and prisoner rehabilitation led her to be employed by the prison service in Britain, where she worked with young offenders. She's since been working in the National Health Service, Mental Health Services, and is currently completing a practitioner doctorate in clinical psychology at University of Surrey. Uh, they've both worked on their grain, groundbreaking book, The, uh, the Buddha Pill, Can Meditation Actually Change You?, which is published by Watkins. And uh, really, this is a study where it puts meditation and mindfulness under the microscope. So we're going to find out more about that. So welcome to you both. Hi. Hi, Steve. So why did you choose this subject, you know, mindfulness and meditation? Not something that usually um, psychologists kind of go into. Um, I've been looking at spiritualities, the effect spiritual practices can have on individuals for a while. And then I met Catherine. At the time, we had just made contact with the Prison Phoenix Trust, which is an organization that leads yoga and meditation classes across most British prisons. And we started working together on a study to see what were the verifiable effects of yoga and meditation in prisoners. And that eventually, as we went along, led us to think about writing a book on meditation. So, um, I mean, the title of the Buddha Pill is an intriguing one. It kind of suggests uh, spiritual practice might not be all that it seems to be, a form of placebo or something. Was that the intended uh, uh, message from the title? Um, I, I don't think that was as such the message. It was more kind of um, us thinking about the way that mindfulness is kind of marketed to us um, as kind of a natural pill that's going to cure us of, of depression and so on. And I think we were, um, in a sense, perhaps playing with the idea and challenging it. And over the course of the book, we really look at the role of individual differences and the way in which these practices can bring about different effects for all of us in the same way, perhaps, that, um, you know, medication can have perhaps unexpected side effects. Um, I guess in the dark side of meditation chapter, we look at that, the potential for um, unexpected or adverse effects. Um, And we also think about, you know, how long do these effects last? So, you know, how long does the changes that 20 minutes of mindfulness meditation bring about and how that can vary from individual to individual? So, I mean, when you began writing this book, did you have a clear idea of the outcome or a message? Or was it like you're going to write it and find out along the way and just publish your findings? Actually, our understanding of meditation changed considerably as we were researching for the book. Mm-hmm. So we started with our study of yoga and meditation in prisons, which for the most part showed positive effects. However, there were also some limitations. 
And as we started looking at the last 45 years of the science of meditation, going back to transcendental meditation and then moving on to, to mindfulness, we were we were surprised by many of the things we were coming up with. I mean, so actually, the scientific evidence is quite inconclusive. Methodologically, there's lots and lots of, of problems. And we're also struck by a certain naive understanding of meditation as a panacea, a cure for all, that it only leads to, to good things. So in a way, the, what is being said about meditation and mindfulness breaks away in a quite substantial way from the tra spiritual traditions which gave rise to these techniques. And as Catherine was, was saying, we're also quite surprised to find out about the, the potential adverse mm. effects of, of meditation. Mm. Not just in terms of mental health problems, but how these techniques have been used for anything, really. Making a person a better soldier, for instance. Mm. So it wasn't that we sort of set out to kind of lay out the dark side of meditation chapter. That almost came up on us as, you know, a surprise, something that we came across as we got deeper into the literature and spoke to more and more people about the topic. I mean, I'm fascinated about that whole side. I will, I will come back to that side because it's a very important aspect of your book, isn't it? Um, mm -hmm. But can you just talk about your research methodology for a moment? Because it's such a kind of internal thing, isn't it? How do you kind of study something like that? Are you talking about our Oxford study or... Oh, well, um, well study I was thinking originally the... Well, you've done a couple of studies. One was the, the prison study, wasn't it? The 10-week study in prisons. Yeah, that's that's our study that we did. Um, the rest are studies that we, you know, we discuss of other people's. Yeah, I'm thinking about your study. So how did you how do you kind of measure the effects of uh, of yoga and meditation? Okay, um, so in the study we um, it was a randomised controlled trial, and we used sort of a battery of psychometric measures. So um, we were specifically looking at the psychological effects of yoga and meditation. We weren't trying to measure things like, say, an increase in spirituality um, or changes in consciousness or anything like that. Right. Um, we So we used sort of a range of self-report questionnaire measures. Now, obviously, there's limitations with these type of measures, but especially in a prison environment, you can be quite constricted as to uh, what you can really use. So, for example, um, we used a um, questionnaire that measured sort of perceived stress Mm. Um, now, obviously, that's a sort of subjective measure. And we had wanted to use, um, take a saliva swab in order to get a measure of cortisol so that we'd have that kind of objective, you know, biological marker of stress. And then we could have, yeah, a more objective measure to see whether our 10-week yoga and meditation intervention produced a decrease in stress or not. Um, but we were not allowed <laughs> to do that. Oh. Um so we had to use, you know, what, what we were able to use, which was sort of a fairly comprehensive battery of questionnaire measures. Okay. Yeah, we also used um, a cognitive test yes, yes. to look at the effects on attention and the ability to deal with your impulse, which is particularly important for this mm -hmm. population. So high levels of problems with impulsivity. And, and we saw some, some interesting effects on that. Um, just just to explain that what's particularly important about these this kind of trial is that you end up with a pool of people who are interested in doing the study and then you randomly allocate them either to do yoga or to be in a control group. 
so that you don't have the effects of people's enthusiasm for for the yoga intervention. So some of them end up doing the yoga, but others don't. And then we look at what's happening after 10 weeks of doing yoga or just doing your everyday normal life. It's such a, a, a stressful environment, I imagine, the prison. So it's probably a perfect place in some ways to do it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think in the book you kind of um, you connect the kind of idea of a prison cell. It can be like an ashram, can't it? Because you're cut off from the world, you know, a, a monk cell kind of thing. I mean, what did you find in this study? Um, we found that uh, there was a, a significant uh, decrease in um, psychological distress, um, in stress and um, improvement in mood I think it was Um, what we didn't find and this is quite interesting was there wasn't any um, decrease in aggression or improvement in interpersonal behavior so the way that prisoners behave towards each other or prison staff Um, so in a sense it was it was interesting what we didn't find as well as what we found yeah okay that's interesting in a way that maybe uh, I suppose it's like meditation alone is great but not but mm-hmm. it probably needs something else as well, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we also, with the computerized tasks that we use, we also found sort of indications that, you know, it could uh, increase sort of self-control and that could have, um, you know, quite a significant, um, I guess, improvement for prisoners because impulsivity is, is a common sort of difficulty. Um, I, I remember seeing a film, Dharma Brothers, which was studied for Passner in an American prison. I don't know if you guys have come across it, but I was quite impressed yeah. by... It was a long-term thing. I think it went over a number of years. Um, and they interviewed the prisoners, and I think it was um, the idea was that it started off, and then a new governor came in and stopped it. And these prisoners were waiting for it to be started again, and it started again. Uh, have you seen that film? Yes. Yeah. And let me just mention: just yesterday, there was a new study published which looked at a number of studies that have been done looking at techniques like Vipassana in prison, but also our yoga and meditation study. And what they generally found is that these techniques do have some effects, but I mean, it's weak to moderate effects. And it looks as if meditation has a better effect when it's gradual, so not as intensive as Vipassana. On the other hand, I mean, some people do benefit a lot from it. And we have a very good case study in in our book, someone whom Catherine interviewed. Mm. Nick, would you like to say something about Nick, Catherine? Um, so Nick's story, I think, was is one of sort of my favourite in the book. And it's quite, I guess, an extreme sort of uh, or unusual story of, of personal, almost transformation, really, um, through yoga. So mm. he was um, an ex-drug, he was a drug smuggler who got arrested and went to a Devoto prison in South America. And um, while he was in solitary confinement, he took up doing yoga and began sort of practicing it on a daily basis. And actually, um, when he left prison and came back to England, became a yoga instructor. And, you know, sort of the days of crime are behind him. And it really would seem like, um, you know, this huge transformation. But talking to him, something that um, was really interesting was he doesn't see, you know, yoga as a cure for like, criminality or yeah. it, it's more something that he has to keep doing every day. So he referred to it as being like his lifetime AA. And again, if we sort of think about these practices in that kind of Buddha pill type thing, you know, is it something that we need to sort of keep taking in order to continue to have those effects? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting. 
<coughs> look, can I just take a look at uh, mindfulness for a minute? Because mm. um, I know you, you address that in your book. Mindfulness uh, is kind of uh, put out there as a cure for kind of or a help for stress and depression. I mean, I have practiced it myself. I find it very good in stress because uh, it slows everything down, gets you in the moment. I'm not quite so sure about the depression. But um, I read an article in the Huffington Post that lists 20 benefits of mindfulness, anything from improving your health to lowering stress. But is it as good as people say it is? So, uh, again, there's this huge hype and misinformation, even on the scientific study. When you look at the collection of studies that have been done, again, the evidence is at most moderate for its effects on on stress and depression. And with depression in particular, we're concerned because some some unusual things are happening with some results. So, for instance, the, the last largest trial on meditation, which was conducted by Mark Williams at Oxford before he retired, they didn't find any differences between the group that was doing mindfulness or just going to the doctor as usual. However, they did find out that there was a subgroup of people that reacted better to the mindfulness intervention, and that was those with a history of childhood trauma and abuse. So this is somewhat counterintuitive, Mm. that it's actually those who are psychologically more vulnerable that seem to react better. They can't even explain why that is, because there is, I mean, uh, there is a problem with with the theory of mindfulness when it's brought into science. There's various views and, to a certain extent, a vacuum of why this is working when it works. Well, I think one of the most striking things about your book was you, when, you, when you addressed the dark side of meditation, which is really the kind of adverse side of, of meditation. And, but really, in a lot of spiritual teachers do write about you know, these kind of challenges you might meet in meditation. Um, well, can you say something about that, this dark side to meditation? Catherine? <laughs> um, well, like you say, some teachers talk about it, but you know, other people don't. And there's, there is, for some, a kind of hush-hush about it. And the other thing is that it's not just, you know, going on a silent retreat that could potentially bring about um, difficult experiences. Um, You know, since the book's come out, we've had a number of emails um, from people who have had adverse or unexpected or difficult experiences through, you know, 20 minutes of mindfulness meditation. And and that in a kind of eight week course with a teacher who and there isn't really kind of regulation as such for mindfulness teachers. So you could have a mindfulness teacher that, you know, really perhaps might have little, um, you know, training in, say, mental health or how to um, support someone who is experiencing psychological distress. And it may not actually be informing people that there is this potential for difficult experience. You know, the pervasive view in the media and amongst sort of advocates of mindfulness is that it is going to, you know, get rid of your stress, make you happier, more productive at work. No one ever really seems to be talking about the fact that for some individuals, it may not be like that. You know, it can make people more stressed. In fact, you know, we were contacted by someone who said they went to a mindfulness um, group and, you know, the effect for them was, was not good. And when they spoke to the uh, teacher about it, the response was, well, maybe you're too stressed to be doing it, you know. Mm-hmm. Interesting. <laughs> um, so I think um, what we wanted to sort of do in the dark side chapter was not to scaremonger in any way. Um, and I think, you know, these experiences, we're not saying they happen for everyone, simply to kind of um, bring to attention the fact that this does happen and and kind of encourage discussion of the topic.
Yeah, so actually bringing in this dark side aspect, I mean, our understanding is a way of getting a really comprehensive and holistic view of what meditation can bring about. And I, I mean, we are concerned that some of the mindfulness researchers have a rather simplistic and reductionist understanding of what our mental life is like. So recently, they gave, uh, the Wellcome Trust gave a huge amount of money, about £7 million, for a new study on mindfulness in, in children. And the, the principal investigator was saying that, yes, this can be like going to the gym, the way it's good for the body. It will make your mind fitter. And I think, hold on, what's, what's this about? Is this the kind of idea, the kind of theory which is underlying um, this, this work? I mean, we certainly think that we're much more complex than that. The mind is not just like a muscle. There's various dimensions to it. And so we're trying to, to bring across this multidimensional aspect of our inner lives also to, in relation to meditation. I guess with um, things like meditation, spiritual practice, there's also a kind of um, a feeling, well, if it's not working, then perhaps you're not doing it right or you're not doing mm -hmm. it hard enough. You know, I yeah. <clears throat> did have a, a friend who um, was in, uh, well, it was in the Hare Krishna movement and uh, his practice wasn't really working very well and he went to a teacher and they said you need to chant harder and I said to him well, I think you need to go and see a counselor more than that yes um, so, so I do want. understand that and yeah. I, I did go through a period in my own life of, um, of depression and I was doing um, Buddhist mindfulness of breath and um, loving kindness and actually I used to come out feeling worse strangely mm. um, even I though um, it, when I'm not was not feeling depressed, actually those those um, meditations made me feel great. But what depression it actually made me feel worse. Mm. I don't know why that was. Yeah. That's what, really interesting. I think you know, it points towards the fact that these techniques could have different uh, effects for us at different times of our lives, depending on what's going on. And you know, with the dark side stuff, it's not that we're saying that having difficult emotions coming to the surface when when you're meditating or doing mindfulness is necessarily a bad thing. It's simply that if we're not talking about the possibility of this happening, then people could be very unprepared for those experiences and may not have, you know, the support around them at that time to be able to, to deal with that kind of material coming up for them. Totally. I mean, I, I don't know if you know Fintorn Foundation up in Scotland, but oh, yes. I've visited there many times. And one, one guy said to me, you know what, people come to Fintorn to have their uh, psychological breakdown or spiritual meltdown, you know. Yes. And I think there is that side to it, that intense, intense meditation practice can start shaking what mm. we call the ego or personality. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's, that's yeah. what these techniques were designed for in the first place. So mm. they were designed to make you feel more relaxed, or, or just happier. They, they, their aim was much deeper than that, to, yeah. to really unpack your ego. So in a sense, we're saying, you know, should, we shouldn't really be surprised by the fact that, you know, these experiences happen. It's just within the kind of secularized, sort of shiny new, you know, mindfulness, modern mindfulness movement. Yeah. That's not really how it's being packaged. It kind of, in a sense, it's sort of, oh, we can entirely separate, separate mindfulness from its Buddhist roots. And I guess perhaps we know, we might query that, you know, can can mindfulness really be truly secular? And shouldn't we be talking about, you know, the spectrum of, of experiences and effects that can happen rather than just pushing the kind of reduction in stress and increased productivity angles? Yes. So you may be aware that some people have been criticizing mindfulness in the same way that they used to criticize 
New Age spirituality for being very ego-centered and narcissistic. Yeah. And one way that researchers try to tackle this is to get people to, rather than just do mindfulness, do loving kindness and compassion meditation. The idea that if we get people to think about being compassionate towards others, they'll do better things to, to other people. And again, I think, I think this is underlined by them a very naive understanding of, of how people change. I mean, in, within a, a monastic Buddhist or Hindu context, Meditation is just a, a small part mm. of what leads to personal change. Mm. You do community work, you do praying, you do you study the scriptures. There's a whole ethical framework to it too. Mm. So getting people to meditate compassionately for 20 minutes a day, I, I think is much less productive than getting them to do things for others, to, mm. to behave in a pro-social way towards others. I think that's much more likely to lead to, to changes. Because I think there's a kind of, in our culture, which I've been around the alternative scene for quite a while, but you can mix and match a lot of things, can't you? You could do a Buddhist meditation and a, a kind of Sufi retreat. And, and if you're, you, most of these traditions, if you're doing, if you were in Buddhism, you were living in community or following the Four Noble Truths or the Ten, you know, the Eightfold Path. And, or if you were a Christian, you were following Jesus's Sermon on the Mount or the... T- or if you're yeah. Hindu, the ten restraints of Hinduism. But you, if you're mixing and matching, it can be a bit confusing, can't it? Different things will work for different people, that's that's for sure. But there is the danger. I think it was Thomas Merton, the, the Trappist monk, who was very interested in, in Eastern spirituality as well. He's talked about the danger of going, you're thirsty, so spiritually thirsty, and you go around lots of wells, but because you're just moving from one, one well to the other, you can't actually get enough water from each well, so you end up mm. dying of thirst. Well, Miguel and Catherine, look, it's fascinating speaking with you both. I know we've just scratched the surface in yeah. some ways, but the book goes really deep into lots of stories. There's a, there's a great bit at the end on the seven myths of meditation, which uh, I will let the guys buy the book and find out about that. <laughs> but uh, it's published by Watkins. And all the best, uh, Miguel and uh, Catherine, with, with the book. Thank you. Like what you've heard? Be part of our community by visiting watkinspublishing.com, following us on Twitter at Watkins Wisdom or liking us on Facebook.